Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord. We have the opportunity to gather. We do pray for Pastor Eric as he's recovering from surgery, that um, the pain would be managed and he would uh, recover on schedule or ahead of schedule. The inflammation would go down and he'd be able to function uh, in the uh, immobilized with the immobilized leg that he has. Lord, we thank you that we could open up scripture and study together and learn glorious things that you have revealed. Give us a love for the truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, what a fantastic section of scripture we have to study. Paul, in Acts chapter 20, addresses the Ephesian elders. They came down to meet him in Miletus. In Ephesus, as you may know, turned out to be one of the key places in the New Testament scriptures. It's amazing how many things are focused on Ephesus. Timothy was in Ephesus. Paul wrote one of his more important epistles to the Ephesians. Most likely, 1 John was uh, written when John was in the vicinity of Ephesus. Ephesus shows up in the book of Revelation. And so this is a very important matter. And as we've said before, the way Luke writes and tells us what's important is key speeches. The longer the speech, the more um, it, it serves as a emphasis of what Paul or some other speaker had to say to to the church or to the group or whoever it was. In Luke 4, it's Jesus in his hometown. In Acts 13, it's Paul in Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue. In Acts 17, it's Paul to the Ephesian philosophers. And in Acts 20, it's Paul to the leadership of the church. So if a person was intent on studying what's important in the leadership of the church, that person would really pay attention to Acts 20. And since that's my, uh, I feel duty right now to define the church biblically, I'm really spending a lot of time studying not only Acts 20, but every Greek word in there that helps us define the church. And the same goes for First and Second Timothy, for that matter, because some of these things come up there. So that's what we're doing here. So let's go to the slide for Acts 20 and verse 27. Acts 20 and verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So I call this a comprehensive proclamation of God's revealed counsel or purpose. And the, this is a famous verse because the King James has the whole counsel of God. And that's certainly a, a good way to translate it as well. The word translated purpose, boule, is one of the words for God's will. Um, and in this context, it, it's about what God has revealed about himself in his workings, in his dealings with humanity, with his calling out of, pe of people to be his people. And it's his plan of messianic salvation in this case, in Acts, that's for both Jews and Gentiles. And so anyone interested in what would define the church would really pay attention here, the whole counsel of God. One of the deficiencies of popular Christianity is to skip everything that's uncomfortable or 
doesn't fit our own group that what we want to emphasize or doesn't fit our vision statement or whatever you want to call it. That's not uh, permissible. That's, that's wrong. To skip what God has chosen to reveal about himself, about his ways, about his purposes, about the church, about the message of salvation and eternal truths that are revealed, that all these things are revealed because they are for us, for believers. So you're not, you can't wear out Deuteronomy 29, 29. Don't forget that one. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed are for us, for our children. So we can preach what's revealed. So um, what was the statement here on the slide? It says, or the statement in verse 26 would not be true. Well, if you remember last week, we, we pointed out the issue of blood guilt. And we went back last week and looked at Ezekiel, where um, Ezekiel is given a message to warn God's people about the needs of repentance and idolatry and whatever was wrong. And that if he issued the warning, according to what God had revealed to the prophet, he'd be free from blood guilt, meaning the, the fact that they're going to die because they're in rebellion against God. But if he did issue the warning and they wouldn't listen anyhow, that's on them. Okay? And we talked about that last week, and I believe it's, uh, hopefully it's uh, uploaded on the website. I know I put it up on uh, where you keep things in the cloud. I guess they're not really in the clouds, but <laughs> figuratively speaking. Now, um, we can't say, and I mentioned last week that there are so many cases where pe people literally begged pastors to preach certain things and they didn't want to do that and they simply say we think you'd be happier in a different church because our vision is to be whatever secret sensitive now according to this that's not really an option is it optional because we know that people don't want to hear about the wrath of God against sin, about repentance from dead works, from eternal hope, from redemption, atonement, forgiveness, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian, preaching the truth, calling people to relationship with God, because that is not what's popular should it be the case that we say, well, that's not our vision, so you should just go somewhere else? Let me talk about the term vision, because I brought it up last week. In the Bible, in this sort of context, vision, especially in the Old Testament, vision is what God's revealed to his spokespersons. Okay? The vision is a term that's equivocated upon by modern pop Christianity or business executives who use the term in a different way and they transfer it to the church. So a vision as used in, in the world means why do we exist? What is our product? How are we going to make a profit by selling our product and what's it going to look like and you do vision casting okay you get your team and you cast a vision we are going to sell more whatever it is and here's how we're going to do it and this is what it's going to look like so a business leader is good at casting a vision so what happened is that people took that approach transferred it to the leadership of a church as if it were business and then you find a niche a, a little idea 
you could sell to the given community, and that's your vision. And that what ended what we ended up with was the purpose-driven church, or Crystal Cathedral, or what's the what's the arena down in Texas? Your best life now. If you don't know, you're better off. Goldstein, yeah. Okay, so there's a simple statement that everybody can get that that's your vision. My claim is this. What this is, is what God has revealed. So vision in the Bible is what God has given to his called out ones and the elders that are the people addressed here. And it's not something we get to decide on our own. Does that make sense? And so if the pastor says, you can't share the gospel here because that's not our vision, that he's in rebellion against God. And the term church no longer applies to that group. Not in this sense. The church are the called out ones, but if the church is filled with the world... What exactly are you called out of? So you have religious people who don't know God, and that's really not the point. So the whole purpose of God is, verse 26, freedom from blood guilt in the sense that we warned everyone that we need to turn to God, that the, that the wages of sin and death that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that there's a way out, there's forgiveness, there's redemption, there's atonement, and we need to live for him. So this purpose, this purpose includes God's plan of messianic salvation for Jews and Gentiles. And some people would say, well, Paul was a reader of people, so that he had one thing he preached to the Jews, that would have been in Acts 13, and a different one for the Gentiles in Acts 17. That's not Luke's point, because in both cases, though addressed to the audience based on what they know, the synagogue had the scriptures, Athenian philosophers had their ideas, but repentance for forgiveness of sins was still preached. There's a universal message is based on the universal fact that all have sinned, all are dead in, in sin, and everyone needs Christ. So knowing your audience isn't the same as changing your message. Does that make sense? That's pretty clear in Luke-Acts. The message is the same. And even when brought before kings, Paul didn't change it because he feared the king. Remember one of them, one of the civil authorities said, you're almost persuading me to be a Christian. And he said, I said, I wish you were like me other than these chains. I want to persuade you. So keep that in mind. That's utterly important. And sadly, go, yeah, uh, Brother Eric, I, you would think I, uh, this would excite pastors to learn this, but I found by experience from hosting a pastor's meeting, it doesn't always do so because there's a lot of price to pay if you're different than your peers in your denomination. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, if you, if you take a look at verse 26. Go ahead and read it if you got yeah, it. And I've got it right here. Therefore, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? That's my editorial comment. Why? Why am I innocent of the blood of all men? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So here's what I'm thinking. I, you know, you're working on a book, of course. But, you know, there's lots of things people think about that churches should do. But this is the reason he's innocent of blood guilt. This has to be the number one, if you're going to have several different things that your church is going to do, this has to be the most important, right? Yes, it, it, I think it's non-negotiable. All right? Um, teach the whole purpose of God. Now, that's not found by copying and pasting a statement 
from a sectarian Christian group in church history. A lot of people think it is. I just I don't write a lot of articles anymore because we get more t people to listen by having video and doing YouTube. But that article on refuting the idea of the creedal imperative, because even the best creed from church history isn't the whole counsel of God. And I also point out in that article that we tend to think we're right because we're us. We're we is technically grammatically correct. That's just how we look at it. But it's not the case. Us has to get corrected sometimes. And better to search the scripture than memorize the creed, stick it in the back of the hymnal, and then go about business. And that's what I said. You know, it's kind of, I thought the people, the, the guy that wrote the book and some cited in there are well respected. And I'm not saying they don't deserve respect, but I'm surprised I never got any pushback from anybody. So I assume they realize they don't have a good argument against what I said, but I'd welcome the pushback. But I don't see it. So I think we need to go with this. Search the scriptures, even if what's in the creed is absolutely correct, like the Trinity, the statements about the deity of Christ, Christology. Why not teach it from scriptures so people get a greater uh, appreciation for the word of God than for their own parochial group? Does that make sense? And that's what uh, I think we need to learn from this. Dr. Schnabel, I like to cite scholars who have re have respect for the text itself. And we need to fight the anti-scholastic bias in evangelicalism. Keeping people in the dark isn't helping them. Give them the tools to read and uh, the materials out there. One, one of the things I learned about the definition of the church in the seminary where they respect the scripture and the truths therein, almost, I mean, consistently can give a biblical definition of the church. And a lot of the categories are there. And I heard them in seminary. But when it comes to practically doing it, it doesn't happen. Like the universal church. What is that? All the redeemed. The church militant. All of the redeemed alive on the earth, part of the battle. But when, when it comes to flushing it out, you end up with vision casting in a business sense. And then it all goes out the window. Or secular counseling as a means of sanctification. We're going to have a Christianized secular counseling thing, and that's what's going to help people. I don't think so. Uh, I, I resist that consistently. It's not helpful because it's implicit um, idea is this that the word of God won't really change people but human wisdom will as Eric pointed out that's why we had a church split because we wanted to go with the word of God and not counseling go ahead yeah I think it really comes down it's to two different things uh, real need and felt needs I think the pop modern church is preaching felt needs and that's where they're becoming friends with the world. Hey, what do you guys want? You know, that purpose-driven church, um, they went around, what do you guys want? What do you guys want? Well, here's what we want. We want to find our purpose. Yeah, we want to find our purpose, and our purpose is we want help for daycare and so on and so forth. And so that's what they were given the people. And the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4, puts it this way. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what I'm saying is this, is that the modern evangelical church, when you are appealing to the felt needs, you're becoming a friend of the world, and you're an enemy of God. So this is really dire. This is not just, oh, well, this is serious yeah, stuff. The, see, the, thank you. The, the thing that confuses people throughout church history is the idea that Christendom is somehow Christianity. 
and I consider Christendom to be part of the world. So if you have how many billion Roman Catholics? A couple billion. Is that Christianity? No. No, it's part of the world. It's a religious aspect of the world. Now, are there any truths in the Catholic catechism? There's truths in there. You can learn if you dig around, you know, a good doctrine of the Trinity, sort of, if you don't go with Mary being a whatever part of that. Go ahead, uh, Peter. Yeah. Uh, to Rich's point, you know, it's not like this is Johnny come lately. The Jews were doing this at the same time. So, you know. Yeah. It's the world. Right. In fact, the Sanhedrin was like that. Um, they had the political class, the Sanhedrin, and then there were some Pharisees that were actually portrayed favorably in the book of Luke because they, they cared about what was right, a few. As I, I'll keep saying this, what, what is one wonderful gift you could have from God? It's just a fantastic gift that will protect you the rest of your life. And that gift is a love for the truth. And it's telling that in Timothy, or Thessalonians, the ones deceived by Antichrist, and the ones who did not welcome Decoli, so I love that Greek word, to welcome into your home, welcome, some like the guy that got up in the tree, welcomed Jesus into his home. Who's the wee little guy in our children's song? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. <laughs> uh, if they did not welcome the love of the truth. So if you don't even want to care what the truth is, well, you'll never listen to it when you hear it. And the, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And when I was debating the emergent, what did they do with that? You got to be careful. There's people that are clever with words. Here's how they handle that. Jesus said that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now, in the context, there was a debate about the truth and the lie earlier in, in John chapter 8. Jesus said, I am the truth, so therefore the truth is personal because Jesus is a person. And then by the time they get done, the truth is personal for everybody. You don't even have to know who Jesus is. The truth is personal. And then you have a conversation that never leads to a conclusion. And anyone who says, this is this, but it's not this, Jesus is, and then you define the biblical doctrine of Christ, not to be the Christ consciousness, but the actual person of Christ, his deity, his non-contingent divine nature, that he created the world, that he's going to come in judgment, all of that, well, then you lose them. They don't believe that. So beware of that. Do you love the truth? And if you could learn it, that's another one. Nobody has all the truth. Have you heard that? Nobody has all the truth. I've heard that so many times. They say that to people who make a confident affirmation of certain things to be true. And then rather than debating whether that affirmation is accurate, biblical, and should be understood that way, or if it's wrong, correct whoever did it, if it's me or anybody else, and so I can learn the way the Lord more per uh, perfectly, the, the statement is nobody knows all the truth with the implied idea, you think you know everything, so I won't listen to you at all. So go away. So then how do you respond to that? The answer is, well, uh, the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and so forth. What if it were possible to know what this verse means? This one, I'm not saying I know the exact truth of every verse in the Bible, and I can tell you what it is right now. I'm not claiming that. But what if I could know this verse? 
And what if I could know it in context? And what if I could know its implication for elders throughout church history, however long it goes? And what if I could put it into practice in my own ministry? Would that be something worth learning? Make it very specific. And they, I don't think I want to come to this meeting anymore. You see, don't get pushed off of your focus on the truth by these claims, nobody knows all the truth. But can we distinguish between what is revealed and what's not revealed? And if it is revealed, wouldn't it be a great joy to know it? Wouldn't it be wonderful to know what it really is? And that we study doesn't make us suspect. That's why I cite scholars. It isn't true because I read it and God told me it has to mean this. Somebody else can see that it's true as well. To that end, Dr. Schnabel says the reason, gar, that's for, for Paul's confidence that he's not responsible for the eternal death of the people in Ephesus in the province of Asia is that he, the fact that he fully and consistently carried out the responsibility that God, the risen Lord, had given him. He never hesitated that he has the Greek there. Um, that's, we look at that in verse 20. He never held back or avoided proclaiming the whole will of God. And then he has the Greek, pasantain boulein. Well, that's boule there. I have it up there. Purpose, revealed will. And it's in its greatest sense, God's eternal purpose from all eternity as it's stated in Ephesians. So he didn't hold back. The whole purpose of God concerning the salvation of Jews and Gentiles through Jesus, Israel's crucified, risen, and exalted Messiah, Savior, and the Lord of all humankind. That's Schnabel. Boy, his commentary has been such a blessing to me. One of the things that I've done, because we don't go through a ton of verses at a time, I printed out the whole section from Acts 20, 17 to 36. And then, so I can look back at some of the common themes, put in a bigger context. Look at, let me just read Acts 20, 21. Testifying both to Jews and Greeks with respect to repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. That's what he's talking about. So why would we assume, as some have said, repentance is only for the Jews. We don't preach that to Gentiles. I'm thinking of Les Feldig. I got a harsh response from somebody the other day about that. They just listened to somebody that contrives this scheme that sounds interesting and the gospel's down to this little thing that we have to do and we can ignore most of all of Luke and most of Acts or they don't claim to ignore it they just say it doesn't for us it would have been for the Jews had they accepted the kingdom but they rejected it so God withdrew it and now we have a different way of doing things that's just not what Luke is telling us Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit the author's meaning is God's meaning. And whatever tools we can equip the church with to understand the biblical author is a tool to help you understand God. And when you understand God and his word and his plan and his salvation, you won't be deceived by the world. That's where our freedom from deception is. We were talking about how deceived before Sunday school story, we're talking about just how deceived the world around us is. The state of Minnesota is like amazingly deceived. And the inconsistencies are obvious to anybody that looks. But that's what happens when Christendom becomes a religion detached from the whole counsel of God. So human life means nothing. 
It's up to a person whether someone's born or killed. Go ahead. A little bit ago, you asked the rhetorical question, what if you could take this verse and understand, and, and it. understand it? Right. Then you could also say the same thing for verse 28 and 29 in Acts 21 and the next book and the next book and every book before it. And, and that's why the, the verse by verse studying of God's word, once you deter from that, that's where the deception comes in. Uh, as, yet I have to admit to my shame that in 1983, I started on the verse by verse, so that's not shameful. But the reason for it was everything, we were doing the trends. Okay, we were in the charismatic movement, at least myself and some of us who were there. And the trends, the latest move of God. And so it would be coming through the shepherding movement, the double-minded man, the casting demons out of Christians so they could be sanctified, the inner healing. So the trends had come through, but then they'd flop. And then a new one would come, and then that would flop. And eventually the problem with the flopping is it leaves behind wounded saints. And they even had a way to justify that. The move of the Spirit, they said, is like the waves of the sea. The Holy Spirit comes, the waves come in. It's a wave of God. And then when it recedes, there's debris left on the, the sand, and it just goes with the territory. Well, I didn't believe that the people I knew who are hurting deserve to be compared to debris. They were very much, some as they got older, despaired, full of fear and desperation on their deathbed because they thought they failed God. And that was enough. The senior pastor and I visiting these people in the hospital that we've got to help people. They can't end up like this. How come the saints don't have hope and joy after they've served God for 90-some years? And so I said, you know, these waves of the Spirit keep ending up not really being what they claim to be. Why don't we just teach verse by verse of the Bible? He agreed. That's what we started doing. And there's been a lot. I've lost a lot of friends over it because the Bible will lead you places that may not be what your tradition would tell you but it will never harm you. So that's why we do this. Now, this includes, here's, here's a good one here, a statement that I think in, I want to talk about a week from today in, in a sermon. This includes God's promises. It includes future judgment. It includes the definitions in ministries of the church. Um, the promises of God are very important, and people have uh, taken hold of that idea and twisted it. I, I really am not, one gift I do not have is the gift of sleep. <laughs> My mind, I, if I could make it till four, I had a really good night. But I wake up and I flip on these channels that have Christian teachers on it. And here's this guy, the son of Kenneth Hagin, who I used to listen to when I was in Bible college, saying we, the promise of God, and then he was talking about healing, but he changed categories. Healing meaning ultimate forgiveness, redemption, in my thinking, eternal life, the resurrection. He's including you don't get sick, and if you do, you get healed right away. And that's, that's the only note they know how to play, the one-note wonder. Boom, boom. I can hit middle C on the piano. <laughs> but, uh, my mom would tell me her cousin was... I took piano lessons, but I ditched that pretty early on. Uh, no, I don't... <laughs> my daughter's... Yeah, well, my daughter is making up. Jessica can play. But anyhow, um, she said, well, you, 
Donna, that was her cousin, said, well, Bob is good at this. He changes keys. How many people can change keys? Well, what she didn't know was I, I hated the black keys. <laughs> I only wanted C, so I just play whatever it looked like C. That's those black keys. They're, they're too hard to reach with my little fingers. So, no, that, that's not the point. But we don't want to take one false idea and make it last for generations of teachers. That if you get sick, now you've failed. You don't have faith. And you end up believing in the idea. I should say it this way. We believe that. I believe that I'm healed right now. Rather than believing in God who makes promises and getting those promises right. The promise that Paul said he was on trial for was the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so future judgment, that's in the Bible. The definition of ministries of the church. I mentioned Deuteronomy 29, 29. I have it in my notes here. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Moses evidently didn't take postmodern word theory or language theory. What is postmodern language theory? The listener or the reader determines the meaning. Whereas the fact is, the writer in any language determines the meaning. If you write a letter to your mother saying, Mother, I appreciate you. It's Mother's Day. I love you. Thank you. And she read it to think, well, my son just said nasty things to me. That's how I read it. Well, then language would be worthless, wouldn't it? Why? How could you have a system of law? How could you have contracts? How could you have proof that you own your house? How could the state prove you owe so much taxes? It's all based on language and that the author determines the meaning. But postmodern language theory says the reader. So how does that turn into a church process? We talked about it a few weeks ago. You read the text, and then you go around, what does that mean to you? How does that make you feel? What does it mean to you? And then you go to the next verse. You don't ever find out what God said. So what we've got to get the, the definitions correct because these are objective truths and they're, the freedom from blood guilt in verse 26 would mean nothing if we didn't know what caused blood guilt, what the remedy was and is, and how to know we're free from it. We declare the whole truth and the way we as persons are free from guilt is believing the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all. He shed his blood because the payment of sin is death. He died for us, the just for the unjust. That's how we can be right with God. And not everybody wants to hear that, but hearing it is a glorious thing for those who believe. Now I have here, if you want to look with me, turn to Luke 24, 25 through 27. Luke 24, 25 through 27. Great, by the way, talking about how Luke reveals meaning to his readers, long speeches and even accounts of long speeches. One long speech that we don't have all the details about is found in Luke 24. After the resurrection, how many people have thought, wouldn't it have been great to be on that road to Emmaus? And they said, our hearts burned within us. He was telling them all the things about himself in the Bible. Well, we weren't there, but we can find out what it is because we can read the Old Testament and see the Messianic promises and they're preached in the synagogue in Pisidia and Antioch. Here it says, Luke 24, 25, they weren't sure what was going on. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. 
was it not, verse 26, necessary for the Christ, which is Messiah, by the way, the anointed one, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Necessary day in the Greek means in Luke Acts, almost always day is divine necessity. How could it be necessary that the promised Messiah had to suffer, to be rejected, and be raised on the third day, and now he's going to enter the glory. He says, why are you slow, slow of heart to believe all that was spoken? It's all there. So as you read through Acts, you find out some of the details. Stephen preached a bunch of them. Paul preached a bunch of them. Peter preached a whole bunch of them. Notice in speeches where there are Jews present, Scripture is cited. So Peter cites Scripture on the day of Pentecost. Stephen cites Scripture at his martyrdom in Acts chapter 7. Paul cites Scripture in the synagogues. And here in Luke 24, uh, wasn't it necessary? Now look at verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them a subjective, objective. He didn't say, how does that make you feel? Doesn't matter how it makes me feel. I want to know what God said. Explain to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they said their heart was burning. You know, the, the, the essence of prophecy is to proclaim the truth about Christ. That's exactly what happened at Pentecost. And then Luke 24, 44, if you're in that chapter, let me read on. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that would be Tanakh, must, there's our word again, be fulfilled. God has spoken. God has predicted. God cannot lie. This will happen, including the things that haven't happened yet, which has to do with future judgment. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. There is the great commission in Luke. A version is repeated at the beginning of Acts. Luke Acts, two volume work, one author. There's the essence. That has to be preached. Now notice it says he opened their mind to understand scripture. Let me talk about that. Once your mind is open, it doesn't mean now the scriptures changed what they mean. He opened their mind to understand what they always meant. Does that make sense? Okay. It isn't what does it mean to you? Well, to them it was, well, this is confusing. They didn't get it. But once they saw the scriptures are pointing to this, that's what happened to me. I didn't believe there was a hell. But when I was confronted with the gospel and told that there was, in an instant, God got a hold of me. It was in a moment, in a flash of time, I knew there was a hell. Even though every liberal preacher in our denomination denied that. Even after my conversion, when I came back from the Iowa State and talked to the pastor of the church, he said, well, when I was a young man, which would have been around 1910, he was a World War I era person, and he said, I used to believe that. I had some kind of experience like that, but now I know the good Lord just wants us to be sincere. And everybody's basically good, 
and he had these rose-colored glasses. And it was sort of believable when the World War II generation was in charge of our rural community. Most adults were responsible. If my bicycle had a flat tire, that didn't happen, but something, the wind would come up and I couldn't pedal it with one speed back home. Oh, here, they put my bike in the back of their truck and drive me to my parents. That's just how they were. But that's not the same as having your sins forgiven. Well, now, I don't, I mean, the, that man was very, was elderly in 1969, or 1971, I mean. Now, you wouldn't even believe that. You would assume they'd steal your bike. And my tennis shoes. So, I mean, that myth of everybody's basically good, if you still believe that one, I guess you don't watch the news or read the paper. But back then, it's, oh, well. So I thought, well, I discharged my responsibility. I told the pastor of the church I grew up in about the gospel. So... um, when he opened their minds to understand scripture, they understood what it meant. Now, what keeps us from, what's the difference there? Somebody that heard the scripture their whole lives, grew up in an evangelical church, learned everything, and then at some point is not really living it. The difference is this. The meaning of the author is revealed in the Bible. The author determines the meaning. And I've seen scholars, notably ones that wrote the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, like Boldman, excuse me, who brilliantly understand the Greek, the background, can give you everything you need to know about the word faith. But the same person who wrote the entry doesn't really have it. Boltman was more of neo-orthodox, blind leap. But he could tell you accurately what the word faith means in the Bible and get it right. That's what I need to preach. I don't... This, the, what's the mental acts of the guy telling me what's true is not my concern. It's that what does it say? So you can know the Bible says something, but I believe it. So here's the difference, and I'll get to you, Brian. There's a difference between meaning and significance. Let me tell you what it means, what I mean by that. Meaning is determined by the Holy Spirit-inspired author of Scripture or any other document. The author determines meaning. The significance has to do with how it weighs upon us in our hearts and minds. And so I can accurately say, I know the Bible teaches there's a hell because we cite the creed in church every Sunday that talks about hell. I just don't believe there is one. And ironically, the pastor who had the the creeds was telling me there's no hell. But I, I know that, well, there were a hell that's probably what it is and and a lot of teenagers think well that's probably where I'm going but let's party so what's missing is the weightiness the word for glory kabod in the Hebrew is weighty the weightiness of its uh, effect on my mind and heart that's what was lacking no, I didn't even believe it was true. But what were these? These disciples believed the Old Testament was true, but now the weightiness of it with the resurrected Christ teaching them, thou, wow, this is real. I was, that's the way I thought. This is, wow, this is real. I got to tell everybody. I got to tell my buddies, which I did. I got to tell everybody. We got a coffee house. That's what you did in the 70s. People would come down there, we'd tell them. Yes, Brian. Well, Jesus was asked, <clears throat> why do you teach this way? So whether it's in parables or whether it's just straightforward 
teaching of Jesus, he answered that it's because you were allowed. He he spoke in those parables because it was his determination. It hardened the people understand. who hated the yeah. truth and yeah. enlightened the ones who loved it because he explained to them what it meant. Yeah, so in the case of your the professor you were talking about, he may have been able to decipher the, the Greek and all this and that, but he didn't understand what it was that was the heart of the message, and that's all because of the... Uh, His liberal philosophy, God, though. See, the orthodoxy says we take a blind leap of faith because our Christian tradition is these things. So the blind leap says we believe in the Trinity. And that's our blind leap. But we're, we don't expect there should be evidence for it. And that's neo-orthodoxy. It's orthodox because you still have the creeds and traditions. It's neo because you don't expect somebody to be able to articulate it with evidence. But that was Boltman. But it doesn't mean that the scriptures don't teach that and that we shouldn't allow the truth to weigh on us to the point where we believe exactly what God said. And when you investigate, like in Matthew, where Eric's been preaching through, how many times does it say that something um, happened in order that it might be fulfilled? Out of Egypt I called my son. So the scripture is not only significant and inerrant, and powerful, it cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. God will do what he said he did because God is God and he cannot lie. So the neo-Orthodox says, we got the right creed. This is our truth. We're, we're Lutheran or we're whatever they had in Germany. Uh, yes, uh, Luann. So beware of that sort of thing. We should search the scriptures like the Bereans to see if these things are objectively true. Yeah, I just thought um, in John 12, I don't know how many uh, examples we have to have, but when Jesus said that he came to save the world, and he said, the one who rejects me and does not accept my words has a judge. And who is that judge? It's the word I have spoken will judge Amen. him on the last day. So we're living in this world you know, unbelievers, and they're that just like living in a world or playing a game that you don't have the rules to. The Bible is your rules of how you get out of judgment, and we have to search them, we have to read them, and know what right. they say. We're accountable. Amen. The very words of Jesus are binding. Absolutely. God cannot lie. Jesus is God the Son. The Holy Spirit cannot lie, by the way. He's God the Spirit. And so. Um, that's one of the arguments I have against the Apostles and Prophets movement because they claim the right to speak by the Spirit authoritatively and speak error and, and things that are wrong. And I'd say, well, that's putting words in the mouth of the Spirit, and I'd be very concerned about doing that. Um, and in some cases, all you have to do is say, this is what I believe is the right thing for me to do, and God will use that. And just be careful about what we ascribe to, to whom we ascribe it. The very words of God come to us through Scripture. Now, let me show you some of the things that are included. I'm going to read Acts, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 4, 2 through 4, 4. I've got about five minutes here. This passage, 2 Timothy 2, 2 through 4. This, again, helps us. Timothy was in Ephesus. This is to the Ephesian elders. This helps us understand. This is necessary for the local church. Elders, every believer, as we're together, we're under the authority of Scripture, and we need to have the whole counsel of God. 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 4. Preach the word. That's, by the way, command. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? Well, whether that's what people like, whether it seems like the Kairos moment, as they say, 
or it seems to be just an ordinary day. Do you think you go wrong by preaching the word? Yes, brother. Timothy 4 2. Yes, 4-2. Did I say something different? 4-2. 2 Timothy 4-2. Thank you. Always correct me. Good. Do that. Otherwise I gotta dig through the whole otherwise I gotta dig through the recording and find out where I was wrong. The tedious process, yeah. Okay. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Now, what are you supposed to do? Um, Have them swear an oath to spend 40 days to become purpose-driven? Oh, wait, that's not in here. Let me read this. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Look at verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That right there, verse 3, should be the end, once for all, to seeker-sensitive. To doing Barna studies of religious consumers to find out what the vision for your church is going to be. Because no consumer survey would say, Give everybody a product you know they don't want. Are you hearing me? You just don't do that. Political campaigns do surveys. What do people want? Then you put it in your ad. But here Paul is saying, the time will come they won't endure some doctrine, so what do you do? Preach it to them. Give everybody what they don't want. Well, I know what I wanted. I'm sure glad I didn't get it. Okay. Um, For the time will come when they not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. You know, a friend will tell you the truth, but somebody that tickles your ears isn't doing you any good. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. That's verse 3. And turn away their ears from the truth will turn aside to myths. So how do you have myths, muthos in the Greek, as the emergent reality for the church? There are books written about that. The mystery, the myth, the esoteric, the non-tangible. We're going to float into the uh, ethereal realm of the spirits and have positive experiences. I know several cases. In one case, someone who we knew as a child, his parents come to church here, uh, doing the meditation, the yoga and all this stuff, communing with the spirits, and all of a sudden the spirits turned on somebody. I know three cases where that happened. And they realized that these spirits are actually evil and deceiving, and they come to Christ. Isn't that something? The spirits eventually can't help themselves. They want to reveal their own evil intent. But see, the truth will never harm you. That's what's so great about it. If you know you're teaching the truth, even though that's not what the religious consumer wants, you have this to feel confident in. No one will be harmed by hearing the truth about forgiveness of sins, the person of Christ, redemption, atonement, changed lives, and being part of the family of God. Verse 4, and it will turn away their ears from the truth, turn aside to myths. Myths are worthless. They're meaningless. They'll deceive you. Now, I want to close on this as we're running out of time. The end of Paul's address to the, to the Athenians. Some say, well, one message for the Jews, different message for Gentiles, different message for philosophers. No. Let me read Acts 17, 30, 31. Paul to the, in Athens, where the philosophers were. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring 
to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus Christ. And when they heard about the resurrection, oh, we'll listen to you later. Some did. Some just mocked him, but some believed. Dear ones, the truth is what we have to offer that they can't get anywhere else. Amen. The elders are being told that this is the baseline. That's what we're here for. The size of the group is important. It's the integrity of the message and having a relationship with God. And may God help us. We got through a whole verse. <laughs> we're speeding along next week, verse 28. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to look into things that are so glorious that we'd never even think of them, but you've revealed them. Give us hope and boldness. May we not be discouraged when our friends and loved ones, people we work with or people and family don't want to hear these things because we don't know when they might. May we be bold in the truth. And Lord, pray that as we go to uh, hear from 1 Corinthians, that you give us wisdom and understanding and love for your word. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.